Welcome to EduThink. Today we're going to drop in on a panel discussion that was held at the recent EduTech conference in Santon. The roundtable discussion was hosted by Charlotte Blichnote, who's a disruptor and business owner, and she spoke to Shirley Lloyd, a recently retired director of the NQF Directorate for the Department of Higher Education and Training. She also spoke to Jill Lithgow, who's an education solutions lead in South Africa for Johnson & Johnson, as well as Gershom Aitchison, who is the co-founder and current headmaster of Education Incorporated Boutique School in Four Ways. Regrettably, there's a fair amount of background noise in this conversation, but the content makes it worthwhile enduring. Over to Charlotte. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our roundtable discussion. We're going to be talking about how to disrupt and innovate in the education space. We're aware this is a touchy subject for many areas of closely into our economy, into business, as the children leave school in the education system. The teachers are often blamed. And today we're going to hopefully disrupt our thinking. We have three very diverse leaders in their field who are going to talk about how they're disrupting. So if I could start off with our first speaker today, Dr. Shirley Lloyd, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm Shirley Lloyd. I'm recently retired from the Department of Higher Education and Training. Well, now it's Higher Education and uh, Science and Innovation. I was the director of the National Qualifications Framework in the department, but I've worked across education and training in a very long career. And my current areas of work uh, I do a lot of research, I serve on boards and committees, and my key interest is in learning theories, recognition of prior learning, and uh, making, in fact, making access for people out there who were particularly impacted by our colonial and apartheid education systems, making access to quality education something that is feasible. Thank you, Dr. Shirley Noel. Gershom, please would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Gershom Aitchison. I'm the founder, co-founder and headmaster of Education Incorporated. It's a boutique school. Ten kids in a class, grade 4 to grade 12. Um, and we don't believe that te technologically advanced school is iPads in the classroom. It's more about a philosophy and a framework that goes with that. We believe that technology doesn't replace the development of whole child. And I spend a lot of my time looking in a crystal ball as to what our kids have to do where they have to be in the future, and more importantly, how they have to interact with, the other, with other people in the world around them. Thank you. And Jill, your... Hi, I am Jill. I'm with Johnson & Johnson Education Solutions, which means that I look after inward and outward facing in the corporate environment. We're in medical education, uh, so um, we teach procedures, we teach um, all sorts of things to our, our surgical um I guess family um, and then we obviously have internal staff which we need to train in order to get them to support. So I think when you look at where is innovation medicine is moving into this magnificent space of, of digitally enhanced everything and it's about getting people on that journey and what excites me at the most I'm just listening to the, the innovation that's happening at school level because we see the add-on of that. We see a, a cohort of people who are really unprepared for what digital, robotics, um, AI, and all of that's about. And then also, again, passionate about access. Um, I see the disparity in, in education systems, and it's always exciting to have somebody who's going to you know, enlighten on access. Great, thank you. So in the world today, the World Economic Forum speaks to us about the change of culture, the thinking as a thinking culture, 
and the role of teachers. And the teachers are not necessarily only in an education space, they are outside of the education space as well. So every single one of us sitting around this table at the moment is a teacher in their own right. So if I can ask our roundtable discussion, Dr. Shirley Lloyd, would you tell us what you see as your vision globally for your specific area, being the NQF is where you come from, the implementation of that for 25 years, that's really a big feat. So how would you see your vision fitting in globally and locally for the future? I'm going to read a bit because I, I did a bit of preparation, but I think my, my, my real vision is that no child must be left behind. I've seen too many cases where children and young people are left behind because we forget that children, young people, and in our South African context, um, we have child-headed households, etc. So if we can use technology, digitized uh, mechanisms, cell phones, whatever, to give access to people to be able to learn to have quality education, I think that is one of the, one of the big areas. The other thing is using technology to do your massive online or open online courses, open education. It doesn't matter if you're teaching under a tree. I've seen success, 100% pass rates, with youngsters sitting under a tree. But there was passion for the young child and passion for the child. So my vision is reinvigorating the passion for the person and making people whole and self-confident and enabling them to engage in a 21st century in whichever way they need to. And interestingly, if you look at the World Economic Forum, you look at the ILO research, you will find that the real jobs of the future are going to lie where machines cannot do what humans do. It's the empathies, it's the working in a team, it's collaboration, all of those things. So to absolutely infuse the education and training system what I call critical crossroad outcomes, which we envisaged 25 years ago when we were designing the NQF and making all of this accessible so that no child is left behind, particularly disadvantaged. Thank you. Gersha, what was your vision and, your, and how it fits into your particular education space, how you've married the two? So... I believe that the success of education is in the relationships that learners have with their teachers and I also believe it is in them exercising their control over the learning process. And when I say learners, I'm not referring to only students, we are all learners ourselves. I spend more time teaching parents about what's going on in the real world in terms of their kids and where education is going as I do with, with the kids themselves. And Part of looking in that crystal ball that I mentioned earlier is an understanding that we're going to have to learn until the day we die to stay relevant as human beings and to stay relevant within ourselves. We are going to live till 120 and we don't keep our minds stimulated. We're going to be vegetables at 80 and spend 40 years not knowing what the last 40 years you know, felt like. So I think for me it's about instilling a curiosity and an understanding and more importantly, that you control what that looks like. You don't, there's some things you have to study, but most importantly, study what really interests you and what you're curious about, because you're going to have to do this a lot. So learn how to study, understand how your own mind works, and go forth and enjoy it. Because learning is, a, is, a, is an enjoyable endeavor if we're doing what we like to do. 
Thank you. Jill, as Education Lead for Johnson & Johnson in South Africa, what would you say your vision is and how does it fit into your education space? I think for me it's, um, it's kind of twofold. Um, my overriding drive around education is changing people's stories. I think education gives you the ability to elevate yourself, it gives you the ability to change your destiny. Um, and this is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. It's why I do learnerships, it's why I do what I do. Um, but then in the professional space as well, I mean, we talk about if, if we have uh, medical education changing the story of, the, of, of medicine, the trajectory of health on the continent, it's massive. So for me, it's really um, motivated by this the, the building blocks to change our story. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we've just gone through a, a learnership program and to see we had uh, six young people who were unemployed that came to us with degrees, lots of degrees, but the inability to find work because there's no actual work integrated learning. And I guess it speaks very well to the critical crossword outcomes. Um, you know, when, when we introduced the NQF system, it was super exciting because we actually were looking at more than just a core qualification. And I think if you're in education, um, we have a responsibility to the fifth industrial revolution. I was talking to somebody outside who said, you know, we, we, we're now educating for the fourth. I said, no, we can't be. We've got to actually see where the human and the robot interface um, and start there because to start at the robot, we're there already. So, yeah, that's, that's my vision. Thank you. Shirley, how would you say your vision of building the passion again for kids and teaching them even that, sitting under a tree, how do you see that vision as fits into globally what's going on at the moment, because I know you've done a lot of work with the UN at the current moment, doing some papers and helping them to change what's worked for us and to use some of that. How would you take your vision and match it to global? Well, globally, and I've worked in the NGF space for, for many years and uh, having been an educator and funnily enough in my career I've taught a lot of youngsters who are in the TV system. But globally what is happening in the NQF space is that national qualifications frameworks or qualifications frameworks are changing. So we're seeing there are, it's moving from being a very tight, almost a, a controlled system to a loosening and a more flexible way of looking at teaching and learning. And uh, with a very keen and deep uh, interest in learning theories, we are seeing learning theories support that. So people learn differently. The rote learning method is just a tiny sliver of part of how people learn. But we're not acquiring knowledge, we are participating, um, we are engaging. Mode 2 learning, mode 3 learning, applications, those things, that is what is happening globally. Strongly underpinned by responsible, credible, valid, relevant use of a variety of technologies. So we are seeing the rise of digitized uh, learning, flipped classrooms, MOOCs, all of those things, and that is a global uh, 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 sort of a, a focus. The other thing we see is a very strong focus to the learner being in control of their learning. So the whole development of blockchain as a technology, you carry your learning with you, even youngsters at school, if they've worked on a project or they're in a hockey team or whatever, that goes into their little blockchain or their little badge and they're building their CVs of what they're learning, lifelong, life-wide and life-deep, as Knud Illeris would say. So I think globally we are seeing the learner in the center, we are seeing qualifications, frameworks, being able to reference across the, the world. There's a global referencing committee looking at how we engage in learning outcomes at the highest levels. And we are seeing very responsible underpinning of 
wide ranges of technology and digitized learning platforms to make it cheaper, believe it or not, mm. wider, massify education accessibility, and that in turn helps the youngster out there who might not be a privileged child mm. to be able to go and pay huge amounts of money. So that's where, the, where we go in global. Thank you. Gershon, you are one of the first in South Africa, if not the first, to introduce the TEDx in your mm. school. So for all of us sitting around the table, I think we can actually appreciate that you've already gone global with your vision. How would you like to share its matching at the moment for you with the global market? Look, there's a bit of irony in the world at the moment because we seem to, you know, with uncertainty, everything seems to be nationalized and we're trying to find our identities and things like that. But at the same time, we've got this pushing against, you know, borderless kind of world. So, you know, kids playing online, they're talking to people in Cairo and Sweden and India and things like that, and they don't understand this. And I think, I think part of breaking down, preparing our kids to go into this borderless world, which they're already living in, is breaking down the idea of different countries, different systems, different things. We kind of share a, a global culture. We kind of share a global sense of what's right and wrong and you know the information and knowledge that we have. And for us, those collaborations, being a TED-Ed school where we're collaborating with countries all around the world. When Jax was doing her um, induction with Jackie Bezos online, they were from 10 different countries, all talking at different time zones about what this looked like. And, um, you know, it also opens up um, further boundaries and borders because people are talking about what's going on and the young kids are speaking honestly to each other about what they're experiencing in their lives. So TED-Ed for us is just a door that gets opened, it's a window that gets opened, allowing our kids to access, not live in a bubble, and access what it looks like to be in another country, in another space. There's other initiatives that we're doing with that, and our TED room is not just a TED room, it, it facilitates start conversations with um, another project that Jax is busy working on um, with um, St Andrews in Scotland, the First Chances Foundation, where kids are being able to talk about their different experiences. We take our kids overseas to see what the world of work looks like in places like Google and Facebook. We're going to Harvard next year to show them what that looks like and what it feels like. And it's not sightseeing trips, it's this is the real world. This is what it feels like and this is what you're stepping into and this is what you can step into. And hearing the stories of the South Africans in Google, in Dublin and how the path they've walked to get there, it just inspires the kids and makes them realize, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, this can happen, you know. And TED-Ed is a very important part of that for us. And other, other than just creating a skill of public speaking, being able to share ideas, which is important in a very concise a very um, precise way that people can understand. When Does that answer your question? Yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. For those of you that may or may not know anything about the brain, neurogenesis is where we build new cells. And every time we have new experience, that's what happens. So what you're doing for kids is teaching them a culture of learning without always regenerating, creating new cells. So that neurogenesis is starting at an early age, which is really different. I think most of us are trying to catch up with neuroplasticity as we, as we sit here today. When we sit, whereas they do, we are sitters, they are doers. And for us to match them, it's not an easy process. All we can really do often is just embrace because their brains are taking off in a totally different way. 
will facilitate. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Joel, and how's yours fitting in with Global? I come from Global. So, I mean, we're a, we're a Global Village at Johnson Johnson, you know, all over the world. So, Global Education is kind of pretty much standard and you, and you, you embrace the technology for, you know, time zones and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I think if, if I, if I, if I really, um, it's it's around culture, um, and for me, the, the culture of learning is universal, and I think that you need to start embracing some of the the similarities, and rather than looking for the differences, and I find that we're very defensive within the South African education space because we always think that we are the poor cousins, and yet working in a multinational as I do, a lot of what we're doing within the South African education space is is beyond what we, what the international. Um, Offices are doing, so I think it's about owning um, the role and, and owning the, the the culture of learning rather than oh you're South African I'm American you you know I, I, I am pre ninety four post ninety four it's actually just we're all in this culture of learning and to provide those opportunities um, and I think that's for us that's critical um, and then, then again standardisation becomes an issue and all sorts of um, craziness if you're looking for difference and I think the similarities outweigh the, the differences by far. And if I can continue with our next question with you exactly, because I think you've addressed already in the next question, what do you see as the biggest challenges we face in this space and how would you propose overcoming them if, if Johnson & Johnson are already addressing yeah. that because you're in that position now? I think it's it's access, and I can't stress it enough, um, you know, it, it's access to opportunities, it's access to Facebook, it's an access to the possibility of what I could become. What we're not doing is, is we're not looking at where are, where are children, where is our youth actually going to be working? And it's around project management skills, people, communication, public speaking, all those what they used to call soft skills, which are critical, particularly within in an organization. When you join the world of work now, you're no longer employed for a period of time. You'll be lucky to join a project. So what are your skill sets? Let's look at that. And that's why I'm super excited about you know giving more than just caps, more than just a, a standard curriculum. How are we actually giving them tools to work? And for me, that's a that, that's a passion, and and it starts with little things. I mean, we were talking earlier around the use of technology, and and when is a cell phone relevant, and when isn't it? I was born before computers. I started this journey much later on. So when I think of kids talking on a cell phone, I think, gosh, what's happened to age-old communication? But it's around understanding the application of that very powerful tool, and that's their way of communicating. How are we moving in that space? How are we actually supporting them safely? To make use of these resources, and then particularly in the business world, um, it's critical. Uh, you know, your brand and, and, and how you position your brand is massive. Um, and those are the, the kind of things that, that we kind of really need to focus on to get our children ready for not even the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth revolution. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Joel. Gershom, what would you say, from your perspective, are the biggest challenges as you see them that we face, and have you thought about any possible solutions? Or is it a work in progress like the rest of us? How long is a piece of string? I think that teacher professional skills, that being that um, teachers are inadequately skilled to do their job specifically in South Africa. Um, and what it leads to is an overregulation to compensate for that. There are countries where the esteem of a teacher is a lot higher, the qualification requirements are a lot higher, and the entrance into that field is a lot higher which means that the teachers can focus on the teaching and have the freedom to do so without the regulations, the administration that almost cripples them, makes them into robots. Um, essentially, the second part of it for me is that teachers need to change their view on the role that they play as teachers. 
They are not demigods standing in front of a class, the font of all knowledge. They are there to create spaces for learning, develop curiosity, and to facilitate a process that they are learning at the same time with the students. It's very likely that if they take the role as, I'm a learner with you, but I have more skills in organizing and managing where we're going in the journey and administrative skills, they'll probably develop a much better relationship with their learners and have a much better learning experience and start enjoying their jobs as well and make themselves more relevant as teachers in that space. So, possible solutions. Create, for me, it's about creating expectations in the learners of what their teachers should be doing and that the learners communicate that to their teachers. And then hiring teachers who are open to getting feedback on what the learners' expectations of them are. Mm. And finding a very important skill for a teacher, I believe, is being able to be friendly with your learners but not being their friends. And it's a skill that any mentor faces. So there are times when you have to draw the line in the sand and chop toes off in terms of behavior because ultimately school teachers are also primary socializers. But it's a continuous talking, continuous conversations and very honest conversations with students and teachers about what that looks like. It is uncomfortable sometimes, but I think in speaking honestly, we're going to start moving forward. And there are a lot of people who are starting to see that. If you want to be a teacher because you want to be a demigod, you're in the wrong place. If you want to be a teacher because you're happy to facilitate and work with young people and learn with them, then you've got a place at our school as a teacher. Hashtag together. Hashtag together. Hashtag, Hashtag together. don't break children. Yes. Do anything you want, just don't break a child. Yes. Okay. Yes. Dr. Shelley uh, Lloyd-Jones. To what the two colleagues have said, I agree. But I'm going to just point out three areas that I think are significant challenges. The first is there's huge wastage of money in the system. It's not that there isn't money. There is money. It's where the money is, where the wastage is, and finding those resources and channeling them correctly where they should be. The second big challenge, I think, and it picks up on what Gershon was saying, is what I call the teacher gap. I think that there is insufficient focus on the training of our teachers and ongoing continuing professional development in being able to understand what I term the intended curriculum, which includes critical cross-field outcomes, all of those things. So we have an intended curriculum in South Africa right now, what we want our system to achieve. But what gets taught and assessed and finally attained, there are gaps between those. And the crucial coming together point in a way is that ability of the teacher to understand this and then take the learners with him or her on this journey together to achieve an attained curriculum. We are currently locked into this matric thing, and it, by the way, matric is not the term, there isn't such a term actually. It's a grade 12 and we write a national semester. Okay, that's my pedantic self coming up. But we are on this journey to finish the syllabus and get eight, nine or ten degrees. So, so I think that's a problem. It's a wrong understanding and insufficient support for our teachers. And then I think the third area is policy confusion. You referred to too much regulation. Now, I come out of a regulatory background, having been a, a senior public servant in the Department of Higher Education and Training. You get good regulation and you get bad regulation. I find that the good regulation and policies are often 
um, not even regarded by the people who should implement. We all disregard the 120 uh, kilometers an hour speed limit until we get caught. So there, there are policies out there that are good, but then there are lots and lots and lots of policies and implementation that create a confused environment. So people really, really don't know what to do in the teachers themselves, the parents, etc. I believe those are problems. So what do we do? Solutions. First of all, find where the money is. And there's lots of it. Some children, for example, at university are getting three or four different bursaries. And the one bursar doesn't know what the other that the other one's giving. So find the money, know what to do with it and where to channel it. We should not have pit toilets. A hashtag fees must fall should not have happened before every pit toilet was eradicated yeah. and every kid had a pair of shoes, food in the tummy, a jersey and a school bus to ride to school. Mm. So maybe we've got an upside down way of looking at what we want to achieve and the dignity of it of a child. CPD for teachers mm. through South African Council of Educators and others is essentially important and we don't all have to go to a venue for a week. We can use massive open online courses, digital technologies to equip teachers. We can engage worldwide with the best people in the medical field, from Johnson & Johnson in Switzerland, for example, on how you teach that or how you do that. And you can sit somewhere and look at it. And then in terms of the policy confusion, I think there needs to be a re-look. And um, one of our ex-presidents, Kalema Matlanti, wrote a report called the Matlanti Report. And he looked at all uh, policies throughout South Africa. And his conclusion was there are just too many. And we need to relook them, simplify them, have one RPL policy, not 64, yeah. have one this, one that. And, and so, so I think there are those, are, to me, are some of the big challenges. But there are solutions. Can I, can I add something to what Shirley's saying? So for me, it's not, when I say policy administration, yeah. I don't yeah. necessarily mean at no, a governmental yes, level. Yeah. I'm talking about being ahead of a school yes, yes. when I don't trust that what's, yes. what is happening in the classroom is what I would like. I then start micromanaging for the outcome that I want. Yeah. That trust comes with an upskilling, etc., etc. And I believe that the teaching profession requires a lot of trust in terms of you can choose the path and the journey based on what that environment and the learners look like and they'll be different from one day to the next. Yeah. That's what no, I'm no, referring no, to. No, I, know, I know that in your yeah. context, yes. in my context, though, it's, the, it's, the this, macro. it's this macro thing, yeah. and you see so many things failing because people just simply didn't read the policy, and in fact, maybe the policy was quite simple, or, as I say, this policy confusion, which then needs to be simplified. Can I just add on there? I'm an um, avid supporter of RPL. And, and, and I think my eyebrow went up when you mentioned that there's all these different um, ideals when it comes to recognition of prior learning. And it's something as a country that would, would be magnificent to redress where we are, um, particularly in the adult learner environment. And yet when you're dealing with higher education, they have a policy, their policy around how many credits you can and then there's one that's in the health sector, which is completely different. So for me, it is that we have probably some of the best building blocks. Yes. We just don't know where to put them. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, how do you bring all of that together? Yeah. How do you, when do you RPL? When do you, well, yeah. when do you, and how can we, you know, that continued professional development, you shouldn't be allowed to come to school. Um, in the medical fraternity, you have to, before you can re-register for the next year, prove that you have done X amount of ethics points, X amount, and I think yes. that that's how we get, I know it sounds almost regulated again, but it really, the, the, the 
I guess the, the discipline of keeping up to date then becomes mandatory. Yeah. To me, my that's work critical. and my thesis was on recognition of prior learning. My husband there will know uh, it's been a passion and it's been a difficult passion because exactly that. Now, in my job as the director of the NQF, I had all the policies. Mm. In fact, I had to develop and write the minister's policy mm. for RPL and implement. And you find that the CHE's policy is not aligned to the ministers. Mm. Yet the ministers in SACWIF had to realign those. Mm. So the minister's policy is a broad, overarching, and a very, very good policy. Mm. And then you move into some of the CETAs that don't even recognize RPL, let mm. alone some mm. universities mm. that don't. Yeah. Now there is a realignment, there is mm. a recognition of prior learning reference group established by the minister to bring this together. Mm. But I agree, part of our skills development solution is recognition of prior learning across the system and as my current work that I do a lot of is in that space because we're seeing people who need promotion. They might not have a degree but they've got all the knowledge, skills and experience to make the best candidate for the job. So I, I agree with you. I Passionate. love that. <laughs> Passions. Can I ask each of you who would share what was the game changer taking us either from global collaboration into your local environment? Which was the game changer for you in your environment? So for me, it's not its not even like an earth-shattering thing. I came across, um, in one of my degrees, a thing called brain-based learning. Um, it's an article written by Kane and Kane. And I think for me, that kind of changed complete paradigm shift. It's around context is key. Educating for the outcome, not educating for the knowledge. In ensuring that you have got a, a mix, a mixed bag, I guess, if, you, if you're looking at it. The brain is wired to learn in a particular way. Use that. You know, blank spaces on a wall, we all just assume, you know, we put art up on the wall. Every day that needs to change because the brain is wired to go, it's there again. So understanding how we can get, wake up the brain to learn, that for me was a game changer. Um, and if you can, you know, if, if you said that education is about creating an experience to change behavior, that to me was also another thing that was critical around. It's not just about learning. You've actually got to take it one step further. You've got to create that environment in which that learning will be applied in order for learning to happen. Otherwise, we really are fighting against the biology. Thank you. So on our first trip to Google in Dublin two and a half years ago, I came back with an understanding that Google has a, an area where everyone works, and then they have different rooms and themes and spaces that people can use based on what they need to do. So I promptly came back to school, changed the definition of a classroom, from our classrooms and then there are spaces. And we've created five spaces in that, in that short time. One is an esports center where the kids build the computers, they're competing online for Fortnite and all sorts of things. We created a garage which has got the 3D printer and the robotics and it's kind of gritty and the kids know they can use it. The TED room with all the AV and things like that. A band room for the garage band to do what they need to do. Um, and. I've also then made the media center where kids can just have free access to the computers as they need to and when they need to use them. One of the first comments that um, my, my wife and partner said to me was, but the teachers aren't going to use them. And I said, it's not for the teachers, it's for the kids. And currently a child who makes an arrangement with a caretaker to open the school during the holidays, after hours on the weekend, can use those spaces without supervision. They can use the 3D printer from grade four. They know they can use it. The responsibility is there. We've got cameras everywhere so we can keep track. But they know that when they go into that space, they can actually just use it. And I think the reason why that resonates so well with me is that 
for me, there's a big, a big distinction between learning and studying. Studying is about the outcome and demonstrating that outcome, where learning is about the knowledge that we need to develop as human beings, our curiosities to feed our souls, etc. Created spaces for learning. At some point, we will have to assess. At some point, they'll have to study. But that's just moments that happen at certain times. For us, learning is a process in creating those spaces. And Google gave that to me. And it's, and it's worked very well. And it's created a nice environment for the learners as well. Thank you. For me, there are three or four issues, and I'll, I'll rattle them off because I'm very aware of time. I think one of the most important uh, sort of game changers was my exposure to digital learning, massive open online courses, open education, distance learning in new ways, and reaching lots of people who were not reachable at a particular stage. Another very big game changer was uh, a program written by Nancy Klein called Time to Think. And, and that, that turned on, on its head for me, what should happen, not only in classrooms, but in corporates, in environments where, where you give people time to talk and recognize the, the dignity of, of, of those environments. The third very big one is Professor Anne Edwards at Oxford University, her work on relational agency, which which cuts right through all of the suspicion and fears and agendas because she's saying when we know what each other's, what we feel, what we think, that we, not have, we don't have malicious agendas, but we're coming from different perspectives to the same, uh, same issue. And that helps when you have to negotiate things, have a look at policies and those interventions. And another huge game changer for me was, and this goes back to the, to the uh, early 2000s, late 1999, 2000, uh, was the Cedar City Campus. Teddy Bletcher developed Cedar City Campus. And the way they then already used technology and the way they ran that institution, every single young person had a role to play. And the roles changed depending on all the skills they had to learn. And I can remember one story very briefly where they had to play cricket against one of the universities. And they, these were all very, very indigent young people but with very clever young people. And so they decided they didn't have a cricket pitch, they had nothing. They were down in an investing building downtown Joburg. So they cut out paper shapes of, of, of bats and they would do simulated bowling, batting, catching, whatever. And in fact, they beat that university in the cricket team. Now, to me, that spoke volumes of the, in, of the ability of the human spirit. So yeah, so that's the, those were the game changers. So if I can wrap up for us, what we've come across here as a common denominator is the human being. The human being that has yet to evolve in their brain, the human being that is learning how to evolve, the human being is learning how to interact with each other and how to build relationships that matter, where there are no agendas, where they can reignite their passion, where they are emotion in motion. No longer are the emotions shut down, but they're embraced and allowed. Relearning how to think, understanding that there are more, there are more than they've ever believed in before. And as adults, we have to encourage that in the education space not only with children, but with each of us. In the area of relationship, building relationship capital, I call it the space between us. We have conversations that happen in this space, not me here with my mind, you there with yours, but in the space between us. So moving forward into disrupting our education space for each of us, 
to take away from this. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Very appreciated. Three leaders. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.